I'm beginning to understand, I think, why I haven't heard many sermon series through 1 Corinthians in my life. <laughs> 1 Corinthians is a challenging book, and it only gets harder as we go through. Um, it's heavy, too, and um, we've dealt with a lot of challenges the last several weeks, the challenge of division, and then the challenge of the last specifically three weeks, the challenge of marriage, and we are going to be concluding that third challenge this morning. This one is particularly God's perspective on singleness. We've looked at God's perspective on marital intimacy and God's perspective on divorce. And while that isn't the exclusive theme of verses 25 to 40, it is a dominant theme. And so we're going to conclude this third challenge before taking a, a little bit of a break so I can, we can catch our breath and I can get my feet under me for the, the rest of this book to, to do a little sermon series on the, on the Song of Solomon leading up to Easter. But for right now, we're going to wrap up um, at 1 Corinthians 7, and we'll pick up chapter 8, Lord willing, after Easter. But let's get into um, 1 Corinthians 7, 25 to 40 this morning. Three points that I have for you. Um, first of all is the rationale to the unmarried. Second of all, we're going to look at the consideration for the unmarried that Paul gives. And then finally, the decision of the unmarried that he concludes with at the end of the chapter. First of all, the rationale to the unmarried. This is in verse 25, if you would look there again. Now concerning the betrothed, that is those who are in a strong form of engagement to be married, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. So Paul clearly identifies his words in verses 25 to 40 as his counsel, not necessarily as a command from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Much of what we will see Paul says here in these verses seem to be tentative and highly circumstantial and contextual to the church at Corinth at this time in the way that his directives to others are not. We tend to think of Paul as an aggressive, take-charge kind of man. We might think that his every word is a thus saith the Lord, which we dare not disobey. And for sure, Paul does give commands, which he expects us to obey. But when he does so, he makes it clear that this is the case. For instance, in verse 10 of this very chapter where he said, which we looked at last week, to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. When his words are an expression of his clear understanding of the teachings and commands of Jesus, he speaks with decisive authority. But when his words are an expression of his personal convictions and preferences, he indicates this as well. We see, saw this in verses 6 and 7. He writes, now as a concession, not a command, I say this. And then in verse 25, like this morning, he says, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who is trustworthy. So Paul gives this counsel in our text this morning in response to some of the questions that had been posed to him by the Corinthians. You notice in verse 1, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, so he's responding to specific questions that the Corinthians have given him. His advice has therefore been solicited about a number of matters. And he's utilizing some sanctified common sense and his vast experience to render a judgment on a questions the Corinthians themselves have posed to him. So we're in the realm of wisdom here in 1 Corinthians 7, a place where godly Christians may choose different options. I want you to see that this is the case in the way he's expressing his judgment. In verse 25, 
The text begins by being bracketed in the language of opinion. He indicates that he has no command from the Lord regarding what the betrothed are to do, but he's giving his judgment, admitting that he has no teaching from Jesus directly related to him given during his earthly ministry on the subject. And then in verse 40, he concludes the passage with the following words. He says, yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I too think I have the Spirit of God. So he begins in verse 25 by expressing that this is a matter of his judgment, and he concludes in verse 40 by saying this is a matter of his judgment. So we're in the realm of wisdom here. We're in the realm of sanctified common sense, which may or may not apply to all of God's people depending on where they find themselves with the Lord and in the circumstances that he has given them in their lives. Also, notice verse 26, the first two words, I think, right? He's careful to make sure that his instruction is not laying any restraint upon the Corinthians that the Lord would have them to embrace. Notice verse 35, he says, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order. So he's not trying to give them a command that is clearly not given to them from the Lord Jesus Christ. He's trying to give them his take on things. Paul refers to various options in this passage not as sinful or holy, but in the language of better and best, right? Notice verse 28 where he uses this very language. He says, but if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she's not sinned. Again, in verse 36, if anyone thinks that he's not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, it has to be, let them do as he wishes. Let them marry. It's no sin. But then in verse 38, he says, so then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. So he's using the language of better and well, not necessarily sin and holiness. Such language suggests that the apostle is tailoring his advice to the specific circumstances of the church at Corinth and not making a universal point. So this matter is not a question of right or wrong, but an issue of good and great, better and best. However, that does not mean we should easily dismiss his counsel simply because it rests in the realm of wisdom. He's at pains to be balanced here, showing that this is his judgment But according to verse 25, his judgment is trustworthy. And according to verse 40, yes, it's his judgment, but he believes he has the Spirit of God in writing these things. So while setting Paul's advice aside is not sin, he's clear that that is the case, it should be weighed seriously. And that's what he's advocating for. Take my counsel Weigh it seriously and prayerfully before the Lord and see if it doesn't resonate with you as well. We might say it's inspired advice. That's what he's giving in these verses. There are certainly hard and fast rules when it comes to marriage and betrothal, engagement, divorce, intimacy, those matters that we've discussed in previous weeks. There are hard and fast rules. He gives them in this very chapter. On some matters, there are no room for concession or compromise. Those who are married are to stay married unless they have grounds for divorce. Those who are married are not to abstain from marital intimacy in that marriage, except for unusual and very limited circumstances. But when it comes down to whether we should get married, Paul all of a sudden turns from laying down rules to giving advice. He does not demand that the Corinthians take his advice 
and even tells them that they do not sin by acting contrary to his counsel. So Paul's purpose is not to lay unbearable burdens and specific ascetic restrictions on single or married believers. He's literally not trying to put a restraint on them, literally throw a noose around them on the church. While he's desperately trying to communicate to them both the urgency and seriousness of the matter, he's seeking to do so in a way that avoids some sort of slavish, legalistic rule that might be used as a true test for devotion. Now this, I think, has a pertinent application for us in the way we handle Scripture. Sometimes, I must confess, that I'm guilty of passing off my convictions as preferences and as though they were co-signed by God himself. When one reads or expounds the Scriptures... We speak with scriptural authority, but when one speaks their opinion, that's another matter altogether. Here, Paul is being straightforward about the fact that he's giving advice and not laying down a command. So if the Corinthians choose to do other than what Paul recommends, they're not sinning. If Paul is clear to tell us when he is not giving us a command... Surely we dare not attempt to pass off our ideas and our preferences and our prejudices as though they're the word of God too. Dear ones, are we that careful when we give God's word to each other? Are you able to differentiate between thus saith the Lord and thus thinketh me? Are others able to differentiate that or is everything like coming from Mount Sinai for you? Your interpretation of everything is absolutely the way it is. Let's be a church where we don't put words in God's mouth that he hasn't put there and take them out of his mouth when he has. We don't want to do either. We need to make clear the distinctions in all of our interaction, whether it be counseling or parenting or social media, between God's word and our word. We can get it wrong. God never gets it wrong. Our judgment on historical, cultural, sometimes biblical matters, is not God's take on historical and cultural and biblical matters. He alone is objective. Our word should always be considered, but God's word must always be obeyed. So that's Paul's judgment. Secondly, let's look at Paul's reason given. This is still under our first main point about the rationale. He's expressed his judgment. Now he gives his reason in verse 26. Notice that verse. He says, I think that in my view of the present, that in view of the present distress, it's good for a man or for a person to remain as he is. So one of the difficulties in dealing with chapter 7 is that Paul speaks of a present crisis or present distress that he never defines. Which seems to indicate that much of the instruction in this passage is being governed by the realities the church is currently facing. And commentators are divided over what this distress or crisis refers to. The Greek word here can legitimately refer to both a kind of distress that is common to all time and a specific kind of distress that's limited to a certain period. So we don't get help by looking at the Greek. We have to consider other factors, namely by looking at the, the context of the letter as a whole and some of the broader concerns of the chapter. Those who take him as referring to a particularly challenging period point to verse 27, where Paul says, Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Don't seek to be free or to get a wife. As it would seem difficult to understand why Paul would have engaged people remain engaged. 
That's what bound to, are you betrothed in such a way that you're bound to get married? Don't seek it. Don't seek to get uh, unbetrothed or separated. That would seem, or if you are bound, then he says, don't seek to be free. And then if you are free, don't seek a wife. That seems very strange to, to universalize that principle across all time. So their argument is he must be referring to a specific historical circumstance here, not a general counsel that would apply across all time periods. Paul's not encouraging engaged couples to remain engaged but unmarried indefinitely. Otherwise, he would advise such couples to break off their engagement, which he doesn't do here or in verses 36 to 38. Rather, he recommends this course of action until the present crisis or distress dissipates. However, I would agree that he's not calling them to remain engaged, as we'll see in a moment, but to go ahead and fulfill their promises and get married. Also, in verse 29, he refers to the appointed time and that it has grown very short, indicating that this in some people's minds, appears to be a particularly acute period of distress. Historically, there has been noted that there was a famine in AD 51, which would have been around the time of 1 Corinthians, which was in the area and around the time the letter was written, so that that could be the background of some of this distress that Paul is speaking of. There's some serious circumstantial factors that are going to be problematic for, for families, specifically Christian families. And so he advises them to stay where you are until the present distress blows over. However, not all commentators see this as a specific historical event, but rather they see it as referring to the second coming of Christ and the ongoing condition of life in this world. Because verse 28 speaks of not the troubles of this moment, but the troubles of this life. And verse 31 speaks of the present form of this world as passing away. That is the entirety of the world in its present condition, not just the specific historical circumstances in which the Corinthians find themselves. So which one are we to take? I don't know. It's hard. It's hard. Men I highly respect take different views on it. I'm inclined to view it not in a specific historical circumstance, although I think there are some applications in that direction. But because of Paul describing the troubles of this life and the passing away of this world, I think he views it as situations in which many Christians across many time periods may find themselves, and therefore this counsel is relevant not just to the Corinthians at this time, but for God's people at all times. And we need to weigh it in light of those historical circumstances. So I'm kind of a middle position. I can appreciate both sides. But I think he's leaning kind of hard on the point that this is something that all of God's people should consider at all times by virtue of apostolic advice and counsel. Now, he offers his conclusion in verse 27, where he says that if you are bound to a wife, betrothed, engaged, don't seek to be free, and if you're free from a wife, that is, you're not presently betrothed or engaged, don't seek a wife. So a man pledged to be married should not seek the engagement and renounce the commitment he's made, and alternatively, a man who hasn't pledged to be married, should not seek a wife. Now, his his counsel is essentially the same as what we've seen in the previous passage. Remain as you are. Remain as you are. Those who feel they have to change their circumstances to be happy or to be spiritual really do not understand what the Christian life is about fundamentally. So that's Paul's rationale. Secondly, we're going to come to the consideration that he gives in light of that rationale in verses 28 to 35. And I want to mention three points here under this second main point. 
So he gives three considerations that he wants them to weigh, specifically the people in the church at that point who are single, who are not married or who are not betrothed or engaged to be married. He wants to give them three encouragements to not pursue marriage. First of all, troubles can be increased in marriage. He says in verse 28, But if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she's not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. Distress and trouble are characteristic of our life as Christ followers, but they can be heightened through marriage and family. As Paul reminded them in chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, to this present hour we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless and we toil working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure. When we're slandered, we try to conciliate. When we have become as, we have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. Could you imagine Paul going through that with a family in tow? Paul wishes us to limit our exposure to those pressures which might tempt us to back off from a bold living and profession of the gospel that might cost us. This often is why some of the mightiest servants of God in the history of Christian missions, even down to this present day, have been single men and women. When one marries and has children, the distress is even greater because now it's not just we who suffer, it's our families who suffer. Family necessitates agonizing choices. To be clear, family is not sin. He's already said that many times, right? But family is difficult. In one sense, shared joy is double joy and shared sorrow is half sorrow. And in another sense, living through a crisis that only affects you is different than living through a crisis that affects your entire family. As one writer says, it's one thing to stand up for Christ under the threat of being thrown to the lion's It's another thing to stand up for Christ under the threat of your small children being thrown to the lions. Troubles can be increased in marriage, and Paul wants to spare the church of that and have that as a category that they they entertain in their minds as they think about marriage. Secondly, eternity can be obscured through marriage. Eternity can be obscured through marriage. Look at verses 29 to 31. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. For now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. One of the great dangers that confronts us always as God's people is the danger of losing sight of the shortness and brevity of our time on earth, isn't it? Luke 12, 45, but if, the slave, but if that slave says in his heart, my master will be lo- a long time coming and began to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. What was the reason for his abuse? He's going to be gone a long time. He ain't coming back anytime soon. Second Peter 3, 3 and 4, know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, saying, where's the promise of his coming? For since, ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. While Paul does not suggest that the Corinthians neglect the duties of family and marital life, he is reminding them and us that this world is not our home. 
In verses 29 to 31, Paul spells out several specific areas in which to apply our belief in the shortness of time. First of all, in our relationship to people. He says in verse 29, so that from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none. Now, let me be clear. Paul is not telling us to leave everybody, neglect family, feel nothing, not enjoy anything, give away everything, and live in a commune with other weirdos in a tinfoil hat waiting till Jesus returns. That is not his vision here. Paul is reminding us to let all our doings in this world, including family and marriage, be flavored with the scent of eternity. And that means if we're married, we don't leave our spouse, we sacrifice for our spouse. We don't neglect them. He's already told us to not neglect them in verses 1 through 5. It means that we stay married to them and not divorce them. That's living in light of eternity. In our relationship to our pain, he says, those who weep as those who did not weep. Now, he's not, cry- he's not saying you should never cry. And he's not saying you should never sympathize with those who cry, right? Romans 12, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who reap. He commands us to weep alongside those who weep, and he doesn't chastise the weeping for weeping. Earthly sorrows do bring sorrow, but they will not always be there. Earthly sorrows will be put aside in heaven, and thus when God calls upon us to suffer for the sake of his name, we should rejoice in it, knowing that it's, that is insignificant in comparison to the heavenly glory that is coming. Also, in our relationship to our pleasure, he says to those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. This is, again, not calling for some sort of asceticism where we never feel happy about anything or we never rejoice in anything. But he's saying earthly pleasures fall far short of eternal rejoicing. The pleasures of the wicked are short-lived and they lead headlong into destruction. And the legitimate pleasures of this life should be enjoyed and received gratefully from the hand of God. Ecclesiastes teaches us that. And they should be enjoyed for God's sake as the gift of a good and gracious father to us. But they should be employed to the glory of God. We are to recognize earthly pleasures as short-lived and not find in them the essence of this life or the next life. When we do rejoice in heaven, then we obey what Jesus told us to do in Luke 10, 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, he said to the disciples who just came home from a great missions trip. He said that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. So when we do rejoice, let it be in those things which are worthy of eternal rejoicing. And in relationship to our possessions, he says, those who buy as though they did not possess. Jesus challenges his disciples to sell their possessions and give to the poor. He tells the story of the rich fool who sought to save all his possessions. He teaches his disciples to not lay up treasure on earth, but rather lay up treasure in heaven. Paul tells Timothy to remind the rich that their abundance comes from God and they are to be rich in good deeds and generous and ready to share. Jesus warns about greed and says, beware and be on guard against every form of greed because man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. The things we now possess will either be used up, worn out, stolen, or they'll be burned up at the end of the age. So we had better not think of anything we purchase as our permanent possession. They can be helpful, they can be useful, but they're not the place in which we ultimately find life and joy. And finally, in our relationship to our power, Paul says, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. 
We should not seek to go through life in this world grabbing for all the gusto we can. We should not seek to go through life trying to lay our hands on everything we can lay our hands on and keep it in a death grip until the Lord take it from us. We should therefore not seek to use everything this life offers to us, but to use those things which promote the gospel and the growth of the saints, including ourselves. In all this, Paul is simply reminding us that we should feel an urgency and expectation that elevates our interests above the interests of this world. While we have to traffic in all this stuff, you got to go, you got to buy groceries this week, going to be married, going to go to a job, going to work, going to do all that stuff, all good stuff. Nothing wrong with it, great. But if it's not flavored with the scent of eternity and it's not done with an eternal perspective attached to it, it can too easily become that for which we live and not that circumstance to which God has called us to live for him. So we must not be so attached to our day-to-day activities in this world that we fail to live in light of the next world. Everything in life must be recalibrated and considered in light of the immensity of the end of our lives and this world as it presently exists. So if you're here this morning and not a Christian, your life is coming to an end. This passage would remind you this morning, dear friend, that you have an eternity to reckon with. And this passage would speak to you that the things that you're doing, the business you're conducting, the family you have, the life you're trying to live, is all going to end one day. And this passage reminds us that there is a higher purpose for life than this life, and that is to live for Christ and to live for eternity, to live in such a way that your, your heart is set free from, from the things of this life to embrace the, the life of, of the, or the things of the life to come, namely Christ himself. Christ would say to you this morning, if you're found in this particular passage, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? and loses or forfeits his own soul. So children, kids, teens, adults, if you've yet to embrace Christ, consider what this passage says to you this morning about the fleeting nature of life. It's here today, it's gone tomorrow. It's so fast. Ask the oldest among us how quick their lives have gone. They will tell you it's sped up by the decade. I don't know where my 30s went. I know I'm only 42, but I don't think I lived them. I don't think I lived my 30s. It felt like I was out of my 20s into my 40s. And I think it's only going to get faster as we go. And Ron verifies. He said it does. So if you have any questions about that, take it up with our brother Ron. He'll, give you th- he'll, he'll set you straight. Thirdly, under this point, devotion can be compromised in marriage. And I, and I use this language specifically, can be, not will be. All right, I don't think... Obviously, Paul has a really high view of marriage. He has a really, even though he's not married, he recognizes it's going to be the, the state of most of God's people, but that also many of God's people will be as he is, not married. So he's not laying on them some sort of guilt trip that they're married and their family and they've chosen a second best life. That, he never uses the language of second best. Now, he does use the language of better or best for strategic kingdom purposes, as we're going to get into in a moment, but not as, as a whole, as a better or, 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 or some sort of second-class life. No, marriage is a God-ordained, pre-fall, Edenic institution. It's a wonderful gift of God. But it can compromise devotion to Christ. 
Marriage and family can entangle us in the things of this world and cause us to lose perspective on the eternal. Notice what he says in verse 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Now, Danny and Brianna, we're not preaching on that passage next Saturday (laughs) as you all get married. But it is an important passage to consider whether you're getting married or whether you've been married or whether you want to be married. All these things need to be considered because devotion can be compromised in marriage. If our concerns are centered on this present age, we're liable to neglect the world to come. And the world that is impermanent takes place in our hearts over the world that is permanent. Paul's point is that while marriage and family are important, we must remember that those relationships belong to this age, not the age to come. In the age to come, none of us will be married except to Jesus. And your family will not be physical. It will be spiritual. And the spouse you now have will be your brother or sister in Christ for all eternity. Probably a special one for which you lived life, but you won't be so consumed with all that happened there. You'll be consumed with all that's happening here in, the, in eternity. Matthew twenty two twenty nine thirty. 30 Jesus answered and said to them, You're mistaken, not understanding the scriptures or the power of God, for in the resurrection they'll neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven, which are not married or given in marriage. doesn't mean we become angels. It means we become like angels in that they are not married. The awareness of this reality must factor into our lives as Christ must be placed above all earthly relationships now in order to be his disciple. Sister, wife... You need to love Jesus more than your husband. Brother, husband, you need to love Jesus more than your wife and your children. And children, you need to love Jesus above your parents. This is what Jesus said, Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. This is basic discipleship. I hate my family. Now, we understand what he means by hate there, right? In comparison to love for me, it looks like hatred. Okay, it doesn't mean we are called to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and hate our neighbor as ourselves? No, love our neighbor as ourselves, which means we love our closest neighbors who are our wife, our husbands, and our children if we're married. And here's why, here's where where I go from preaching to meddling, so be, be warned. I believe the final judgment will bear this out. We often let the legitimate but temporal concerns of marriage and family drive our life agenda instead of the ultimate and eternal concerns of Jesus. When we get married and we have children, we begin to spend more time thinking about and planning activities for our families, the education of our children, and the welfare of our household than we do making disciples, the mission of the church, and the growth of the kingdom of God. I am not drawing a hard line between these two things because they are not mutually exclusive. In fact, if we have children, they are the front line for us to make disciples and grow the kingdom of God. All I'm saying is that is it not possible or perhaps likely 
that the family has been elevated to a place where it conflicts with our devotion to God. For starters, where do we instinctive, who do we instinctively invite over for Sunday meals? Physical family or spiritual family? We won't miss an opportunity to be out of town on Sunday for a meeting with our physical family, but we will often miss an opportunity to be with our spiritual family. This is one of the ways our devotion to God gets compromised, and you know it who often who often you know who often feels it the most in our church? Singles. As one single member has told me recently, being single in the church means that you don't have a built-in group to go out to dinner with or watch a movie with or just to take in life with. Singles need community too. They need married friends that consider them equals, who invite them into the chaos that is married and family life. They want to be around your kids and teens and see what everyday life is like. So invite them over for dinner with your family. Perhaps, could I say it, even a weekly standing dinner? Nothing special, just an ordinary night with a Christian family in my church. There are some singles in our congregation who've been here for years and never been invited over by a family from our church. Let them help with dishes and bedtime routines. They want to do it. Some of them even want to go to school plays and soccer games and maybe even a vacation with you. This is an area where our church could shine as a different community altogether than the normal Owensboro community, which is family-centered. We don't shine if we're just family-centered. We we shine when we're church family-centered, which includes physical family, of course, not negating this. This is an area where these, these concentric circles can overlap. You don't have to say, kids, you're not eating tonight. We're having church family over. No, the kids will eat too, and the church family will eat too, right? Let's take the words of our Lord and of the Apostle Paul more seriously. Paul wants us to walk the narrow line of keeping marriage and family in its proper place. Family is important, really important, but it's not first. We must not look down upon it, forbidding and forsaking marriage like demonic teaching of the ascetics do in 1 Timothy 4. Neither should we elevate marriage and family above its proper place and fail to recognize that it's a gift of God for this life only, to be stewarded for the kingdom of God. You will love your family best when you love your family second. Not second to your work, second to Jesus. This is because, as Jesus or as C.S. Lewis reminded us, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, you get neither. So aim at the kingdom of God, and you get the benefits of a rich family life. Aim at the family life as an end in itself. You don't get the kingdom of God or a meaningful family life. I believe those most happily married are those who do not feel that they have to be married in order to be happy. Those who feel that life is not what it ought to be unless they're with their children expect too much of their children and will consequently never be as content in Christ or a blessing to their children as they could be. Just as those who give up their lives are the ones who gain it and those who lead do so by serving, so those who are happily married could be happily unmarried. Those who are happily with children could be happy without children. Not saying there wouldn't be sorrow or sadness that you carry, 
but it doesn't dissolve into discontentment and frustration and bitterness that the Lord never gave you those things. This is because the primary goal in life is to be devoted to God, whether this means staying single or getting married, because life is about Christ and his person first, not Christ and his gifts first. Which is why single or married in our congregation, there are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. Now, our singles will often tell you that they feel that way, but they know that's not the case, and we know that's not the case. We are all equal at the foot of the cross, equal in value, equal in worth. Singles didn't mess up in anything they did wrong. Married people didn't do anything right because God brought them a spouse. Tom Schreiner says, seeing God's good gifts in the present world order, in the present world order, accord with Paul's theology, whether the subject is marriage, possessions, or the joys that belong to this life. What Paul emphasizes, however, is the ephemeral, passing, fleeting nature of life in this world. Thus, it would be unwise to locate one's ultimate joy or significance in that which is temporary. And that is his point. So don't get bogged down in all the stuff. Oh no, I'm married. I made the wrong decision. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. God has called you to live out your discipleship there. But don't let it compromise your discipleship to Christ. It will be a temptation. Are you acting like that? Are you aware of that? Is it on your radar that my family can inhibit my devotion to Christ if I'm not careful? And if I'm not engaged in terms of my mind and my heart with the Lord. Thirdly and finally, the decision of the unmarried. Paul gives them three words of counsel here for those who are not, unmar- not yet married, to weigh that decision. First of all, he says, weigh your options. Notice verse 36. He says, if anyone thinks that he's not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry, it's no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart, to keep her as, as his betrothed, he'll do well. So he says, weigh the options. Are you engaged? Do you have a possibility of getting engaged? And how are your passions? Those are the questions. Christians need to make a point of traveling light, but only if they can do so without falling into sexual immorality. Paul's realistic. A person without the gift of celibacy who falls periodically into immorality would be better off with a wife and family in this life than with his browser history of porn sites occupying his whole life which may keep him out of the kingdom or her out of the kingdom. But what about those who are not engaged and yet have passions? This is a category in which many singles find themselves. They would like to be married, but for various reasons have not been given the opportunity. For some, singleness isn't so much a choice as it's a calling. It's the place and position that the Lord has assigned to them. And if they could change it, they would, but they strive to remain there with God, just as Paul told them to in 1 Corinthians 7. Now let me say this, and this is not the only word that needs to be said, but in our culture it is a word that needs to be said. Godly single men need to step up, and if they're not called to celibacy, they need to marry godly single women. Single men and men-to-be, if you're not called to celibacy and you have an open door to wholehearted Christian service and you, that, that would be compromised by a wife and children then 
don't get married. But if you don't have that, you should assume that God has called you to marriage and you need to come to Christ, join the church, build your character, quit playing games, drop your roots, keep a job, and marry a godly girl. Your life will be inestimably better for it. Men are like Mack trucks. They drive straighter with a weighted load. And marriage and family may just be the load you need to keep your life on track. Some of you young men are absolutely adrift. And it's because of this. You are not, if you are not called to celibacy, and yet you unnecessarily prolong your singleness, you will not become more godly. You will drift and swerve all over the course of life trying to find where to go, and all the while a Christian wife and family has been in your rear view instead of your windshield. And you'll crash for failing to look in the right direction. On the flip side, since that's not the only word that needs to be said, it's not like something went wrong if singles are not married. So I'm not laying a guilt trip on anyone in our congregation who finds themselves in the late 20s, early 30s, 40s, 50s, who have never been married. The Lord simply has not provided a husband or wife, even if you have walked faithfully with him. And none of these things, man or woman, have been characteristic of you. You haven't drifted. You've stayed in the church. You've loved the Lord Jesus. You've tried to follow him and fulfill your calling, but that gift has not been provided. It may have nothing to do with your maturity or your effort. So we've got to banish the idea that if we go through all the right stages of life and click all the right boxes along the way, we're going to pop out happily married with 2.5 kids. That is not life in this world. That's prosperity gospel to the core. This is not the way life works. We go through stages, and one of those stages is getting married and raising kids. And for most people, that's true. But for those who either choose singleness or have it chosen for them by the Lord, they don't get stuck at some adolescent stage. They're mature, they're fully grown adult believers, and they're, they're valued as fully formed members of the body and church of Christ. Secondly, Paul says, think it through. Think it through, verse 38. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. So he says, ask this question, which is better for the sake of the kingdom, single, to remain single or to pursue marriage? Schreiner says, the words well and better are to be taken functionally. It's not as if individuals who are gifted to marry have chosen second best for their lives, for they are called to marry. The purpose is to say that singleness is to be preferred functionally and that kingdom goals are advanced. What a particular individual should choose must be discerned by considering his or her calling. So let me be clear. For many, the option to marry is the best option for the sake of the kingdom. We must remember that Paul's words here do not reflect everything he teaches about marriage or the scriptures teach about marriage, but they're directed to the specific situation of asceticism that had crept into the church at Corinth, thinking that marriage was somehow bad or corrupt or wrong. While Paul exalts the single state, he does not idolize the single state. Staying single does not always produce kingdom devotedness. Marriage can be neglected for selfish reasons. Paul is talking about someone dedicated to Christ through the gift of celibacy for spiritual reasons, not someone addicted to singleness for selfish reasons. Staying single is not automatically the spiritual thing to do, but it most certainly can be an opportunity to devote oneself to the Lord in a more intensified and direct way. So this teaches us something important about how we view singles in the church. Sex, marriage, and children are not essential to full personhood. If so, Jesus isn't our Savior and we need to quit worshiping Him as such. 
because he wasn't fully human because he never had sex and he didn't have a wife. As one of our sisters reminded me recently, singles are still human beings made in God's image. There is nothing wrong with us and we're not incomplete because we're not married. Marriage is not the ideal. Serving Christ is the ideal. And that can be done through both marriage and singleness. The goal of life is not getting married and having a family. It's knowing Christ and serving the Lord. And if that includes having marriage and a family, praise the Lord. And if not, so be it. Praise the Lord. We are called to honor one another in the body of Christ, and that would include the ways that singles serve the Lord in their singleness. Would the Lord say that HBC has that testimony in the way we think about marriage and singleness? Do we honor and celebrate the presence and gifts of singles in our congregation or only when they get married and have a baby? Because that's when they're really doing something for the Lord. What about if someone graduates from school or gets their master's or moves into their first house or launches a ministry or leads a Bible study or makes disciples or cares for the elderly? Is that not worth celebrating? Are those not good things as well? See, we need to open and broaden our horizons a little bit more beyond what's normal for Christians. Finally, consider the ramifications, Paul says in verse 39. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to marry, to whom she, be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she's happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Key question is this. Do I realize that marriage is for life and I must marry only a Christian? Paul has almost completely covered the territory, hasn't he, in this chapter? It's pretty astounding. He says, if you're married, stay married. Don't even think about divorce. If, you're not mar- if, you're, if you are married, don't deprive each other sexually, which can only tempt you to sin. Those who are unmarried should consider the spiritual benefits of remaining single. Those who are engaged should feel free to not proceed with marriage, but they should not feel guilty about marriage either. And now Paul turns to the only category which is left, widows. He instructs them to remain as they are, and it appears to be older widows to whom he is referring, since 1 Timothy 5 gives the exact opposite counsel where Paul instructs younger widows to marry. So I want to stress that there is not one ideal Christian life, is there? Not according to 1 Corinthians 7. And the church should be populated by all of these kinds of people. If a church becomes a family-oriented church, they've made an idol out of the family. And some churches have done it. Baptist churches have done it. We're a family-centered church. Well, uh, you should be a Christ-centered church and a Christian-centered church and not a family-centered church. You've made an idol out of the family and you need to repent. Lest the Lord remove your lampstand. Because you're not representing Christ, you're representing the family. So there's lots of different ways to be Christian. Life is hard and complex and i got 45 minutes. So I can't possibly say everything that needs to be said. But that's where the helpfulness of this text comes into clear focus. Some Christians want everything in black and white. They want nice, simple rules with all the decisions of life about the will of God nicely summed up for them. In effect, they do not want to believe that they have the freedom to choose between acceptable alternatives. And this is what Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, remain as you are, and if you have an opportunity to change it, Consider the ramifications for the kingdom and make a decision. That's 1 Corinthians 7. Do we want God to map out our life so that we don't have to make agonizing and hard decisions? It ain't going to happen. For to remove such a calling from our life would be to say, you don't have to walk by faith. 
You can walk by sight. Here's what you're supposed to do. Now do it. Well, that's no trusting the Lord at all. So here, this text reminds us that many of life's decisions are our responsibility to make. Paul gives advice, inspired advice, and he tries to help us thinking about those issues, especially revolving marriage and divorce and singleness and things like that. But he is calling us in the final analysis to decide what we will do in as much as it is in our power to decide. It's my opinion that when we decide between two morally acceptable alternatives, God is not concerned so much with which decision we make as why we made the decision. As Matthew Henry says, that condition of life should be chosen by the Christian in which it's most likely he will have the best helps and the fewest hindrances in the service of God. I love that. Choose the life that allows you to have the best helps and the least hindrances in the service of God. Because that's why we're all here. Our decision should not be made solely on the basis of what we're free to do, but on the basis of what course of action best enables us to serve the Lord. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule, Paul says, in all the churches. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for even the challenging parts like 1 Corinthians 7 and 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Corinthians 5 and 1 Corinthians 4, 3, 2, and 1 and 8 through 16. Lord, your word is good and you are kind and you give us light and help. And we thank you for this opportunity to sit under your instruction regarding marriage and singleness and divorce and all these matters of family life these last several weeks. Lord, would you sanctify these truths to our hearts and souls and minds? Would you enable us to live above um, the things that you have called us to live in, not ignoring those responsibilities, but living in them and through them, always with an eye to eternity. Living in them, remaining there with God, using them and serving serving in them for your purposes, knowing that we are here but for a short time. And all of our activities of this life are to be characterized with the sin of eternity. So, Lord, would you grant that to us? Lord, we are so easily weighed down week in and week out by the pressing concerns of this life. What will we have for dinner? And those can drive our agendas and our lives. And, Lord, would you help us to even as we plan what we will have for dinner to not forget heaven. And even as we bathe our children to not forget heaven. And even as we live out our single lives and callings to not forget heaven. And even as we engage in all the buying and selling of this life and all the relating and all the marrying and all the giving in marriage, help us to see that that will not be the case at the resurrection of the just, where there will be no marrying or giving in marriage, but we will be like angels who neither marry nor are given in marriage, but shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father, in whose name we pray. Amen.